Hi, Alison. Hey, Sarah. How's your summer going? Well, you know, hot, as everybody knows. <laughs> hot, hot, hot. Yeah, it certainly Heat is. wave and such. Yeah, although as we speak, it's actually rather cool. But I, well, I'm sitting here in an air-conditioned office, so it's all well, hunky-dory for me. That's a whole other issue, air conditioning in France, anyway. It certainly <laughs> is. So we said we would be off this summer, didn't we? But, yeah. you know, we thought we'd maybe just pop in and say hi and rerun some of the pieces that we really enjoyed making. So, Sarah, do you remember Jacqueline Jonquel? She was a, a French woman defending the right to die with dignity, not just for other people, but for herself. Right. Yeah, I remember. That was an unusual interview. It was. She wasn't dying in hospital like many people uh, who are asking for this right to die, but she'd reached an age where her life was diminished and she'd really lost a taste for life. She wanted to end it herself while she still had the faculties to do so. Uh, France doesn't allow either euthanasia or assisted suicide, so she fully intended to go to Switzerland, where she would be allowed to end her days. I spoke to her in October last year. Many of the pleasures I used to have are reduced, like uh, eating a good meal. I can't because I get a stomachache if I eat a lot. I can only eat very little at a time. Mm, I can't get drunk because it gives me a headache. You tell me these are not very important pleasures, but they are pleasures. Uh, forget about sex unless I want to pay for it, which I don't. I still have the pleasure of walking. You know, I can do stuff like that. I'm not even complaining. I'm very grateful for the life I had. I just would like it to end. I would like to be able to to depart in a dignified way, yes. Elegantly and uh, dignified, and that's why I can't wait for too long. That's Jacqueline Genkel. She's a youthful-looking 77-year-old. I met her at her home in Paris. She appears physically rather frail, but she's very sharp and feisty. She's a member of ADMD. That's the main group pushing for the right to die in dignity in France. As a volunteer, she supports and advises people, and she has accompanied people to Switzerland. But also as someone who's worried about her own declining health and being unable to manage her own end of life here in France, well, she set herself a date for going to Switzerland to die. But then life got in the way. I had actually made the, decided on the 20th of July, 2020. I liked that date and I said, that's going to be my date, okay. And in March or April or something, my daughter-in-law sent me a photograph of that thing where you see that, that she's pregnant, you know. And I see that and then I talk to her as well. The baby's due in November, and I thought, oh, well, I can't really not wait for the birth of the baby. And then what happened? The baby was born on the day of my birthday, on the 28th of October, and they called the little boy Jack. Everybody calls me Jack. I mean, nobody can give you a present like that, and you can't refuse it. It was it was beautiful seeing that little boy, and he's going to be one now. So now I have another thing I, to wait for him to be one, and then I have to wait for this. I don't really want to wait for so many things anymore. So you haven't set a date, but what is your plan then? I don't want to be put in a nursing home. I don't want to end up in the emergency ward of some hospital. I don't either want to be declared as a crazy person or whatever. And so you have to go to Switzerland? Yeah. The day I decide, I just have to be accepted, which I will be. I have to prove that I suffer from different age-related problems. I don't have to have a terminal disease, but I have to be able to argue my case. Uh, I can't just say, look, uh, I'm fed up of life. 
having registered with associations in Switzerland, when the time comes, what happens? Uh, I will go to Basel because um, I have this very good friend who's the president of Life Circle in Basel. So it's nicer to go with a friend around me because I'm not sure whether anybody of my family will be there. So at least I'll have my friend. And um, she asks a few questions. Um, it's just, you know, for for the police. Afterwards, the police comes. I just have to lie down and uh, then uh, there's a drip. And I have to be able to turn the tap of the drip myself. Because euthanasia or... Um, Assisted death through a doctor is not allowed, so it's assisted suicide, meaning the patient himself or herself has to be able to actually either swallow a lethal uh, potion or turn the tap of a drip. Once you've done that, it's about three minutes and you're dead. Totally pain-free. It's like, you know, uh, total anesthesia. That's what the vets have been doing with dogs for the past, I don't know how many years. You bring your dog to the vet, you see how he falls asleep, he falls asleep peacefully. Why is that denied to human beings? You've accompanied people to Switzerland? Yeah, many. Well, not always to Switzerland, but towards. I've advised people. I have one right now. I mean, he's been wanting to die for the past four years and he's still alive. And And he keeps coming and talking and... Don't okay. you see the irony of the fact there are you wanting to end it all and yet you're helping people? But how long can I do that for? There we have the, the question. I mean, if I knew that I could uh, hold on for I don't know how long and, and things would stay the way they are, I would feel reassured and I would go on doing what I'm doing. The thing is that I'm scared by what I see. I mean, when I go and visit people in uh, French hospitals, or if I visit people in nursing homes and I see the way they're treated, and especially during COVID, I mean, it was just horrible. I mean, the patients weren't asked if they wanted to live or to die. The doctors decided for them. We know here in France that there have been cases where clearly, even though it's not authorised, François Mitterrand, I mean, there were some people I clearly... People here too. You've helped people. Yeah. The thing is, is that it's very risky to do that. I mean, I did it in cases where the patient was obviously not capable of travelling anymore. The situation was totally desperate. The patient was suffering and nobody was doing anything about it. So are you saying that you administer drugs? No. Personally, I never did that. So what form does your help take? I found the right doctors. There are doctors who do it. In France, what kind of evolution have you seen, Jacqueline, in terms of attitudes towards assisted suicide? They announce, 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 but it doesn't happen. And I think the reason is also because uh, old people and sick people uh, can't walk, take to the streets like the Gilets Jaunes and march for their rights. And so there's nobody really uh, defending their rights. Nobody seems to care. I mean, nobody speaks about the, the rights of the old. And there's nothing particularly nice about being old. But what is the alternative? The alternative is death, meaning it's a choice. And the choice should be given to every single person. The only thing I'm campaigning for is not for euthanasia, it's not for assisted suicide. I'm more for life than for death. But I'm for living well and dying well. And a dignified life also includes a dignified death, in my eyes. If I prefer to be hooked on machines and uh, to be fed artificially, it's also my choice. If they have no more quality of life, and that really does depend on very different things. It really is about deciding what you do 
with your own body. It is about control. It should not be for the doctors to decide. It's a philosophical issue. And it's uh, about democracy. It's about liberty. Every constitution in Europe says that you should be able to choose uh, your religion, the way you live, your sexuality, everything except your death. Why? So since we recorded this, Jacqueline ended her own life as she'd planned to do. Uh, She was 78 years old, but it didn't happen in Switzerland, but at her home on the 30th of March this year. Yeah, and there was very little in the the media about this. Yeah, you know what? I mean, (laughs) you told me because you just landed on the story by accident and I hadn't seen a thing. And I was quite shocked, in fact, uh, that there was so little take up, given how much effort she'd put into campaigning for the right to die with dignity. And I'm wondering if it isn't because she, you know, she wasn't a paraplegic. She wasn't all, you know, wired up in hospital. There weren't any grim photos where you could feel pity for her or or feel somehow that it was a kindness to put her out of her misery. Yeah, there was this kind of, you know, like it's an unusual situation, right, where it's this, you know, relatively healthy person who was just tired of life and wanted to do it, which I thought was very interesting in the interview. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't well. Yeah. uh, But it's true that she wasn't on death's door. I was, in all honesty, I was very touched by her death because we'd stayed in touch. Uh, We got on. uh, I got to know her a bit better. She was a fascinating woman. She spoke seven languages. You know, she was born to Russian parents. She'd uh, lived in China for a long time. She'd traveled the world. She had three children who all lived abroad. And just four days before she took her own life, uh, she sent me a message inviting me for Sunday lunch, but um, I wasn't able to go. Do you think she would have told you that she'd she'd chosen a date? Certainly not. Ah. Yeah, under under French law, you can be prosecuted for not intervening and preventing a death. So she wouldn't have told you kind of to protect you? She wouldn't have told me, and certainly she didn't tell anyone else. And that's why she had to die alone. And she deeply resented that. She left a message on her blog uh, that was published on a Swiss website in which she talked about old age being an incurable disease. I lived the life I wanted to live, she said. Uh, Decrepitude and old age are more frightening to me than death. I don't want to grow old. It's my right. It's my choice. Um, She used the drug pentobarbital, uh, which in France is used to put animals down, but it's forbidden to humans. And she admitted on her blog that at the moment when she was going to take that drug, she was indeed afraid. We have to hope that her fight for what she believed in might maybe benefit other people in the future. But for the moment, assisted suicide remains illegal in France. A bit of a change of pace um, and a piece from the archives. Years ago, I visited a pastry kitchen in August and I discovered that they were already preparing for Christmas. You're kidding me. In the boiling heat, they're already thinking about, you know, sitting in front of a fire with snow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And your Christmas cakes and pastries. It turns out even still now and even more so, pastry chefs are always thinking, you know, one or two steps ahead to preparing their stocks for the crunch time. You know, Christmas is a very busy season, so that customers have their products on time. The kitchens of the Grande Épicerie de Paris, the gourmet food shop attached to the upscale Bon Marché department store, are down in the basement, away from the August sunshine. Putting on the booties. Visitors need to put on plastic booties over their shoes, wear a hairnet and a plastic coat, 
to keep dirt and germs from the outside world out of the kitchen. I do feel like I'm going into surgery. Down here in the pastry lab, half a dozen people in white coats and checkered pants are busy stirring creams, folding croissants, and glazing cakes on stainless steel counters. Sarah Tyler manages the Petit Gâteau section, the small cakes, the Petit Four and bite-sized pastries that are served at weddings and brunches. Today, she and her team are working on test batches of creams that will be considered as part of their fall collection. We have little chocolate boxes that will be filled with different fillings. We have for a tart, we have a cake that we'll probably be doing tomorrow. Tyler moves quickly between her counters and her stocks. She then shows off what is one of the most important tools a pastry chef has. So this is the freezer, it's kind of loud. These are room-sized freezers. Trays of finished tarts and cakes are stacked on wheeled carts, ready to go up and be sold. Behind these boxes, Along the walls are towers of white styrofoam boxes with labels on them. about 10 boxes. Those are all cheesecakes. We did them last week, and this will take me up until hopefully November. Everything we do is in freezers. Nothing except if it's a fresh fruit tart is fresh. I've been in little stores and big stores. Everybody works in freezers. It's simply not possible. With the amount of products we have and the amount of staff to do every single thing every day. Right now it's the summer, very calm. So what we're doing in my section and also in the cake section is we're starting to prepare for winter for Christmas. The Christmas season is the busiest time of the year for pastry chefs, with the bûche, the traditional Yule log cakes, as well as the galette, puff pastry king's cakes that are eaten at the beginning of January. We'll start those in October or November for January, and we still have to make some all through January. We'll make about 10,000 during the holidays. We're probably using close to 200 kilos of butter just for the puff pastry. Someone from the cake section wheels by a stack of jelly-covered sponge cake, a component of the Yule Logs. We're moving towards Christmas, he says. They're being frozen, they're being stocked, and in December, production will stop. It will just shift into decoration. We decorate them almost as fast as we sell them. So this is the flash freezer. You can hear it's humming. Anything that's going to be frozen needs to first be put into a flash freezer, which will bring any product down to a very, very cold temperature, negative 30 hours, in a very fast time. And then it can be put in our regular freezer, which is at about negative 20 Celsius. Back in the testing kitchen, Tyler and two other chefs are still stirring and boiling. When they're done with the samples, they'll sit down with the head chef and choose their favorites. They'll start producing those in October. Upstairs, outside of the kitchens in the warm August sun, it's hard to imagine that the chefs underground are working away at Christmas, like so many of Santa's little helpers. It's all in a summer's work. So that's it for this special summer episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, we may pop in for another one in August, so stay tuned. You'll find Spotlight on France on your favorite podcast app. Or look for us on Instagram, Spotlight on France, or find us on rfienglish.com. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. <laughs>